Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to pick them up and turn to the fifth chapter in the book of Luke as we continue this series in the gospel, which is the the story about Jesus written by one of his followers who, interesting enough, wasn't one of the original 12, but he was uh, pretty good friends with uh, particularly the Apostle Paul. And God ordained him, called him out to, to write the truth about Jesus. And so our series is Knowing the Truth about Jesus. And of course, we don't want to know the opposite. We don't want to know that which is false about Jesus, but we want to know the truth about Jesus. And this morning, I want to speak on, as we look into the text, the truth about how Jesus helps people. And really, as we think about the challenge of five for five, spending five minutes a day praying for five people in our relational world that don't know Christ, you know, well, how are we supposed to help them? Uh, and, and really, if we don't have five, and some of you might be saying, I don't have five people I know that don't know Jesus. All my friends are Christians. Well, how do we get into the world that needs to know about Jesus? And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But I, I, I kind of want to kind of give a mini-sermon before I give a sermon. Sometimes I do that. Uh, but yesterday in our men's ministry, we were discussing something called accidental Phariseeism. Now you'd be saying, what in the world is that? Well, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, and if you're not, that's okay, uh, to be a Pharisee in the days of Jesus was to be highly committed, but sometimes so much so that you, you really missed what God really wanted to do in people's lives. You, you thought that your traditions, your religious traditions, the things that you thought were really important, and let me just ask you something really simple today. Is this a pretty big book? You found it there, there's a lot of pages here and a lot of words. And you know what people do to this book? Even though it's a big book with a lot of words in it, they add words to it. They make it, I think I need to make sure that people really get it, so I'll give you all kinds of other stuff to do other than what God has already said that you ought to do or stop doing. And really what it is to be a Pharisee is to take your, your things that are on your list that you think are important if you're really going to be a committed person to follow God, and you impose that on somebody else. And once we add to God's word by adding more things for people to do than God has said himself, then, then we can fall into uh, being a Pharisee and saying, well, this is what a, a person who really walks with God looks like. And, and we need to think that as, as we think about the message of this big book, it's, it's, it's a pretty simple message. It's, it's an awesome message. But it's so easy to cloud it and miss it. The simple message, in fact, the Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I, I'm so burdened that you might be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? It simply means to be simply in love with the person this book is talking about through every page. Sometimes very creatively that we miss it. But even the Old Testament, it was presenting the message that, that God loves us so much that once we messed up, he was sending someone to rescue us. And, and so the message of, of being a follower of Jesus Christ is so simple, but I, I, I do want to clarify it a little bit. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy to simply be devoted to Jesus Christ and put your trust and allegiance to him. It's not, it's not always easy to obey him, even though when you, you know in your mind that he knows what is best, but at that moment you, you think you have an alternative plan that might be better at that moment. And so as we think about getting into this book, we want, we want us all to remember that what God is calling us to is to, 
to come to him. That familiar passage in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Many people, as they perceive Christianity, they, they think it's, it's going to be an, a, a, an organization, a, a way of life and where rules and regulations are going to be imposed on you and your life is not going to be made simpler. It's going to be more complicated and there's going to be burdens piled upon you. And Jesus said, I, I'm, I'm inviting to a, a life filled with rest. Now, however, when we, when we say that, it's, that's pretty simple. Just trust Jesus with your life. Give those things to him that separate you from him, which is your sin. Turn from that and turn to him. As simple as that is, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. And that's why Jesus said this. Okay, if you do this, it's going to be a radical change in your life. And that's why he said in Luke chapter 9, he said, I'm saying this to all of you now. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So the message is simple. You need to turn to Jesus and not... Be so preoccupied with yourself that that's all you do is do whatever you please. And for that to happen, you've got to be willing to, to say no to yourself and say yes to him. And that's simple, but it's not always easy. And then when we want to know the specifics, that's why we get in this book, because he gives us the specifics. What will that look like if you simply follow me and not yourself? That makes sense? So what Jesus does, and, and so often what he does is, it's what's called counterintuitive. He, he does things that totally surprise people. And we've, uh, maybe many of us have heard that little phrase, WWJD, what would Jesus do? But what is more really important is WDJD, what did Jesus do? Because once you find out what Jesus did, then you can know what Jesus would do, right? So if, if we're really committed to following Jesus, we, we follow Jesus and recognize that he was the greatest helper of people. Would you agree with that? I mean, it was just amazing how he helped people. But he hasn't called us to heal every disease that comes to us and do every miracle he was able to do, but he has called us to live the pattern of life he had lived, which is, okay, I've come that you, that not to be served, but to serve. I've come not primarily to be helped, but to help. Well, how did he do that? Well, let's look at it in Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. We're just going to pull out some simple principles here as we watch Jesus do what he did and then uh, that might give us a clue how we ought to do what he wants us to do. And we're going to see that in terms of how we help people. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. And here we pick up the account. And, and after he, this is Jesus, went out, and that's right after he had done some amazing things. We looked at that last week. He took someone full of leprosy who saw himself not only physically uh, burdened down but spiritually. And he said, can you make me clean? And Jesus did that. Uh, and then he took himself away from the crowd and spent time alone with the Heavenly Father, speaking with his, with his Father. And then he picked up someone who could not walk and healed the paralytic, but he went beyond that and he forgave him of his sins. And, and then it says, after that, he went on. He went out and he noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, Levi, left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. Now, I'm going to give you some points this morning that, that hopefully you see is, is 
pretty simple, and I'm actually a pretty simple person. How did Jesus help people? And we're going to see right here that he helped Levi. Well, how did that all begin? After that, he, Jesus, went out, and what did he do? He noticed. He noticed. Have you realized that it's so easy not to notice things? I mean, uh, when I go in the refrigerator looking for something, and I say, Alice, where did you put the whatever it is, okay? And she says, it's right in front of you. And I'm, saying, I'm looking right here where you told me to look, and it's not there. And then she comes out and she says, look, it's right here on that shelf, right where I told you it is, right? And I'm thinking, how did I miss that? Well, because I didn't what? I didn't notice. I, I didn't look clearly. Now, it, it's all right if you miss something in the refrigerator that you desperately want to consume at that moment. But, you know, what we do is we go by people all the time and we don't what? We don't notice them. You know, to my own shame, I, you know, I could tell you all kinds of shameful stories about me. But, you know, I've been in church at times where people, you know, I'm, I'm trying to connect with people. And all of a sudden, later on in the morning, somebody comes up to me. You know, you walked right past me. And you didn't even notice me. Now, if you know me a lot, I can be defensive. I can be argumentative. I can be a debater. And, but, you know, when they say that, I have nothing what? I have nothing to say. Because it was true. I went right by them and did not even see them. And, and Jesus, what Jesus did, he, he noticed people. But, but what I want to, I want to even go a little bit farther. He noticed people that others didn't just not see, they didn't want to see. They didn't want to look at. Now, I, I think I'm being honest here when I'm saying, you know, when I have noticed people, it wasn't because I didn't want to notice them. I just got preoccupied. You know, I was, I was thinking about too many things at once. I was seeing somebody else, and, I, and I, just, I just missed them. But what he's saying here is that there's another level of that. We don't notice people because we don't want to notice them. And maybe the reason we don't want to notice them is because other people don't want to look at them. They don't want to notice them. See, what he knows, he knows a tax collector. Now, April 15th is coming up pretty soon, right? You know, April 15th is what? It's tax day. And if there's anything we would like to avoid, it would be tax day, right? If somehow we could get just a year off and we don't, we don't have to notice that day. And, 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 you know, we don't have that same stigma today. But if I were to tell you, you know, we had a bunch of IRS, IRS agents in our church, how would you feel? You know, I hope they're not going to audit me this year, right? Well, you know, we have a little of that because we simply don't want to pay taxes. But it really doesn't, you know, it's a, it's, it can be a noble position to be a person, you know, working for our, our government and trying to collect the right amount of tax from people. But that was not the job of the tax collectors in those days. Because really what they were known as by the nation of Israel about their own people, because the tax collectors in Israel were Jewish. They had been attracted or... They had been persuaded by the Roman government to take on this position because it was very lucrative. If you are a tax collector, you're going to be one of the richest men in all the land. Because what would happen is that the Roman Empire would say, okay, I want you to collect this amount of tax, and anything more that you collect is what? It's yours. So the reason that people didn't notice Levi, the tax collector, like Jesus did, because they did not want to look at him because they saw him as a traitor. 
Now, what were the consequences of being a traitor as a tax collector? You weren't allowed to even come into the synagogue. In fact, if there had been a court case, you weren't allowed to, to give testimony in a court because everyone knew that you were a what? You were a liar. And why were you a liar? Because you collected taxes that were not deserving of people. You told them they, need to, they owed this much. They didn't really owe that much. And so everything you said could not be trusted. Now, if we're thinking honestly, we'd probably say, if I'm thinking about the five people I'm going to be praying for, trying to respond to the, the message of Christ, you might say, I, I, I probably won't put that person on my list. But you're thinking, well, I really don't know anybody like that on my list. Well, it doesn't matter who's on your list, but do you have anybody that you would not put on your list? And maybe what we ought to be thinking is, is be like Jesus and begin to notice people. Maybe, maybe the people we don't notice are the people that just are, are kind of in the background, that, that no one really knows what's going on in their life. They're, they're a mystery because there's no conversation being extended to that person. But Jesus always noticed, whether it was the woman at the well who no one wanted to talk to. In fact, she had to go collect water when no one else was there because of the, of the, the shame of her lifestyle. Or whether it be someone in a position in which they were gouging other people financially. Jesus, Jesus noticed people. And I would pray for all of us, it's simple. And this is the simplicity of the Christian life, is that we ought to be the most people-centered group within all the world. We look at people like Jesus looked at them. No matter what's going on in their life, is this, is this a person that Jesus loves, cares for, could do something in, that would bring them to the point of experiencing life to its fullest and being made right with God. We could go off on this, but in Luke's account, he's called Levi. But just like he did to some of the other disciples, he gets a name change. The word Levi simply means like a joiner. And maybe he, I don't know why, if, if sovereignly God allowed his parents to name him Levi, but he kind of joined the, racks of the, the ranks of the Roman Empire to, to really oppress his own people. But once he became a disciple, an apostle, his name was changed to Matthew, which means gift of God. And maybe the people that we come in contact with, we, we, don't, we don't see them like God's, but, but God sees them as a gift of God to you and to me to be a Jesus follower in front of them and, and do whatever we can to be an influencer in their lives to see Jesus and what he can do in their life. I mean, Matthew came to the point where, where no one would listen to him because he was known as a liar and a traitor. And then he, as some people say, he wrote Bible. He, he wrote a gospel, the gospel of Matthew. A person radically changed because simply someone helped him because they noticed them. And that's what Jesus did. But, but, but let's move on. How did Jesus help people? He noticed them, even people others wouldn't look at. But look at Matthew Luke chapter 5, verse 29 and 30. What happened after Levi, Matthew, <laughs> began to follow Jesus? And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. 
And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? You know how bad the tax collectors had to be in the minds of the religious folk because it was a synonym for being a sinner. And it wasn't mean that you, they were people who made some mistakes here and there. When they said sinner, they, they, talked, they described people who, who committed the, the, the worst type of sin. And whether you're a tax collector or a person who is committing whatever you consider the worst type of sin, it's, it's, it's synonymous. And what do we learn from here? Again, another simple principle. Jesus went where, where people were hanging out. And, and this particular point, he, he went where people needed to hear about Jesus. And where, where the most of them were, were in a, in a party thrown by Levi. And, and Levi said, I want, every, I want everybody that I know well to, to experience Jesus. And so he, he threw a party. And the only people who would come would be a fellow tax collectors and other people that no one else noticed and wanted to be around. And Jesus went there. He, he hung out where people were. And, and sometimes we as, as Christians can, can be in our little holy huddle at times. You know, we only hang out with other people who are like us, only other church people, only other people who, who look like us, act like us, and carry a big book. But we ought to hang out with each other. And we do a lot of things here, particularly with our life groups, to, to encourage that and to say this is just, this is just critically important. But, but Jesus went where people were that needed to know Jesus. And if we don't have any unchurched friends, then, then we need to break out of our holy huddle. We need to go where they are. Now, as we do this, we need to understand. I mean, there, there are some people who almost get it wrong this way. We say, well, you know, Jesus loved the tax collector more than he loved the religious people. That, that's not true. He loved them all. But some of them had much more of a listening ear to him. And the other thing we need to realize is that the Bible has everything in perfect balance. Where we, when we go where people are, we, need, we understand and we need to look at ourselves honestly. Who's influencing who when we go where people are? Uh, there's a pretty straightforward verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Don't, don't be ignorant. Don't get it wrong here. Bad company corrupts good what? Morals. And that is true. You will be marked by the people you're around. And so when you're around people, you really got to be honest with yourself. Am I influencing them or are they influencing me? And so depending on where you've been and where you're going, you might have some boundaries where you say, that's not safe for me. But for others... Where others could not go, you could go because what other people are involved in is not a temptation to you. I, you know, when I've been in bars or when I've been in a place where people are drinking hard liquor, you know, that's, that's not a problem for me. It, it would, it, I mean, it's not, it, it doesn't even draw any desire for me to, to drink what they're drinking. And so I can be there and just talk with them and identify with them. But for others, that would be the worst place to go. 
But where is it that, that God wants us to say, this is where I need to go because this is where people are. And, and this is where I need to build a bridge of relationship. Not because I'm better than them, but, but I have something I want them to experience. Life to its fullest. So how did, how did Jesus help people? He helped people because he noticed them. Even people other people wouldn't look at. How did Jesus help people? Because he went where they were hanging out. In this particular case, it was at, it was at Levi's party for all of his friends, and he showed up there. Now, when that happens, you might get some criticism from people. And it was the religious crowd that particular time. So how can you, how can you be there with those kind of people? And so Jesus responds. It gives us kind of another idea into how he did what he did. Verse 31. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not for those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, you know, what's the simple point here? Jesus helped people who needed and wanted his help. We can, we can spend all our time trying to sell snow cones to Eskimos, but quite frankly, they don't what? They, they don't want it, and they don't need it. They got plenty of ice around them. And, and what we need is we, we need to go to people far from God. Now, that, that doesn't mean they're involved in some aberrant alternative lifestyle. It could be. But there are people who, who just seem so far off the spiritual radar that unless someone goes to them and speaks into their life, that they're never going to get it. And so many people don't reject true Christianity. They, they reject their perception of Christianity. And, and so we need to go to them. We need to engage them in conversation. We need to bring them into our world. And we need to go into their world. Because the reality, that's why Jesus came. He, he, he came to, to find the people who were lost so they could be found. He, he came to find the people who were sick that needed to be made well. He, he came to find the people who were blind that needed to see. He came to find the people who could not hear, but he could give them the ability to hear from God. And if we think that was all physical when he did the miraculous, then we miss the point. He did it all so that they might know who he is. And so, so he spoke into their lives, and, and he spoke into the, the lives of the, the people who did not get it. Look at, this is the reason I have come. The reason I am coming in your home, because you have invited me into your home. And if I went in there, you wouldn't want to listen to me. How did Jesus help people? He, he helped people because he noticed them. Even people others wouldn't look at. How did he help people? He, he helped people because he, he went where they were. He extended himself, and he helped people who needed and wanted help. Fourthly, and I think this is, this is critically important because this is where sometimes we miss, we miss what we're supposed to be doing and why we're supposed to be doing it, and what's the ultimate result. In verse 33, it says this, and they said to him, so they came back at him, this is a Interesting because, well, we'll just read it and then we'll comment on it. The disciples of John often fast and others fast. 
The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours, they eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with him, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in these days. And you're thinking, what in the world is he saying here? What he's, let me just state it and then we'll look at it. How did Jesus help people? He helped people to celebrate life as well as being committed. And that's kind of the hidden language in here. So look at it. Yeah, John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, our disciples. You are, you're, giving a, you're giving a watered-down message here. You're not calling people to, a, to a, a radical commitment to Christ because if you did, right up front you'd say, if you're going to follow me, you've got you to be willing to deny yourself. You've got to fast as much as our disciples do, our followers. The word disciple simply means followers. And how often do the, the, the Pharisees fast? And fasting is when you deny yourself. Usually it's of what you consume in your body. It's eating and drinking. And, and they would fast two days a week. Now, I dare say, now there might be some exceptions here, probably none of you every single week of the year fast, don't eat at all, two days of the week. You know, sometimes we might do that if we want to get into certain skinny pants or whatever like that. But, if, you know, you know what, what, uh, what, what they're saying, look, if you're really spiritual, and they did on Monday and Thursdays. I don't know why they picked Mondays and Thursdays, but they would fast every Mondays and Thursdays. And by the way, when they did it, they want to make sure everybody else knew about it because if you're going to deny yourself, you better get some kind of, you know, props from people. And he said, not only did we do it, but actually John, who you thought was a pretty good guy, John the Baptist, you know, they're, 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 uh, his followers did it as well. And there's some indication that even maybe some of Jesus' disciples were wondering, you know, if we're really following the Messiah, we, this ought to be a pretty high commitment. We ought to do that as well. You know how many times uh, the... In the Old Testament, that the, the Jewish people were required to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so what was happening here is these the disciples of the Pharisees and John the Baptist followers were being more spiritual than God was required in all the Old Testament. Now, were there other fasts other than the Day of Atonement? Of course there was. There were times of they would fast because they were grieving or they were filled with sorrow or particularly they wanted to discern the will of God or they were sorrowing or they were, they were repenting of their sin and, they, and it so overwhelmed them that they, all they wanted to concentrate was on the relationship with God. I mean, Jesus, we know Jesus fasted other times. We have at least one record of that. And it, for instance, in Matthew chapter 4, it says uh, that when Jesus went out into the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days. Uh, th- there's a place for fasting. And then later on in, in this text, as we read it, he said, there's going to come a time where my followers are going to fast. But, but, but what you miss is fasting or anything you do to draw more attention and time spent with God is for the purpose of getting closer to God. It's not to to portray something extra spiritual to other people. It's to say, you know, I am so needing at this moment to spend additional time with God, I don't have time to take a break to eat anything or drink anything or, or, or whatever I'm 
denying myself of. It's being distracting in my relationship with God. So I'm, I'm doing it for the purpose of me drawing close to him. And, and what they were missing was when you do that, what it ought to do is not multiply your pain, but multiply your joy. He said, why would, why would my disciples fast in the presence of God? When you fast, it's for the purpose of bringing yourself into the presence of God in a more intense way. Think about it for a moment. The followers of Jesus, when he was right next to them, was there anything they could do to get closer to Jesus than Jesus being right there? No, nothing. You know, skipping a meal wasn't going to get Jesus any closer to them. He was already in their presence. And this is what we need to realize. The byproduct of walking with God is your joy is multiplied. And that's true in the Old Testament and the New Testament. What a great passage in Psalm 1611. Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is what kind of joy? Fullness of joy. Thy right hand, there are pleasures forever. It doesn't get any better than this. That's not a beer commercial. That's a Bible verse. No, not like a Bible verse. It doesn't get any better than being close to God. And it ought to result in the abundance of life. Jesus said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. Uh, John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you. You know, it's kind of, you know, a teacher really has to, you know, get down to the lower level when he said, I just, I just preached at you. I just taught you. And in case you didn't get it, let me summarize this to you. These things I have so, spoken to you. Why did I teach you? That my joy may be in you and your joy may be made what? Full. So Jesus helped people because he, he wanted them to see this is what life really is all about. When you're fully connected with me, this was what life was designed to be from the very beginning. It got messed up by your sin, and now I'm restoring it to you that you can truly celebrate life. And he uses an analogy to, uh, to describe it. He says, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. Now, Often in, um, and it's become a bigger and bigger thing now, but often when, when you know, a man and woman gets married and after they, they say I do and the last prayer is prayed or how they've ever finished the, the, the ceremony, the, everyone in the wedding party goes and has a great what? A great meal, a great feast. They just celebrate what has just happened. Now just think it for a moment. Let's say you're, you're one of the ones on the left or on the right. So you're not just in, invited to the wedding, but you are one of the attendants. And all of a sudden, you're at the head table. They have the head table. They have the, the, the man and the woman, and they have all their attendants up there. And they bring all this food, and you say, well, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I really can't eat anything because I'm on a what? I'm on a diet. And probably say, well, then I shouldn't have had you an attendant. I mean, I got all this food for you. You're not, no, this is not the time to be on a diet. Same thing. If you go on a cruise, that's not the time to be on a what? <laughs> on a diet. Look, don't go on a cruise. That's the only reason you go on a cruise, to eat more food than you should eat, Right? And he's saying, look, at that's just ludicrous. That's just ludicrous. We're not asking people to deny the normal joys of life because you're in the presence of the person who is the fullness of joy. You celebrate life. Now, he's not saying, hey, there isn't, I'm not saying there's not a time in which your simple commitment to me, which is total devotion, 
that there aren't going to be hard times where you're going to have to do everything on your part to draw close to me because, you know, we have a tendency to draw away from God, and God says, draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. And if, if it takes denying yourself as something that distracts you spiritually or takes more time from your time and spending time with them, then do that. And they did that later, but he said, that's, that's only a method. That's not the goal. And they made goal, the goal, fasting. And it's like anything in the Christian life. You know, the, the goal of reading the Bible is not to know the Bible more. The, the, re, the reason we go to the Bible is to know who more? God more. And, and you know, I, you know, I can, you know, I've memorized quite a few verses, and right, when I want to use them, I use them to get under people's skin. Well, that's not the point of the Bible, right? You know, the point of the Bible is I know God you know, better if I know his word. And, and sometimes we, we take the method and we forget the goal. The goal is to know him more. And when we know him more, we're full of joy. And when we're full of joy, that's when people see what happens when you know God. I was reading a, a, a comment by Martin Luther, and he said, Christians ought to be the most joyful people in the world. In fact, he, I think he used the word cheerful people in the world. And if you're not joyful and cheerful, that means probably Satan's tempting you. There were, uh, there were groups of Christians down through the church history. They got kicked out of church because they were too happy in church. I mean, there, there are some, <laughs> you know, there, there's some times when you, you know, you could bring a, a child or a young person, you know, maybe they're happy and they're smiling, and all of a sudden, shh, this is church. You've got to be miserable in church, you know? <laughs> you know, we, we, ought to be, we ought to be people who really believe what Jesus said. I came, and let me say, these things I've spoken to you. You're not getting this. That my joy may be in you, and that my joy is, is fullness. What, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, and patience, and kindness. So they didn't get it. They said, you're, you're, if you don't get it, this is what he's saying. Your disciples are too happy. Your disciples, you know, they're not, they're not doing the hard things. They said, they're going to be going through some hard times. And we know every one of the disciples was martyred for their faith other than John. But I dare say they were full of joy in the midst of everything they went through. Does that make sense? So when we help people, we help people because we notice them. We help them because we go where they're at. We help them because we, uh, we realize they want help and need help, and sometimes they don't know it immediately, but we're, we really believe that they're the kind of people who are going to be open to what we have to say about the truth about Jesus. And we give them a message that, allows them to celebrate life. Now, it's going to take a commitment, but there's a celebration of life. And then fifthly, in Luke 5, 36 through 39, we see that Jesus helps people by doing major surgery and not minor surgery. And here's where that simplicity does demand commitment, but also a commitment to to not do it the wrong way. Look at verse 36. And he was also telling them a parable. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, okay? He said, no no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and, and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And see, what they were missing, they were saying, okay, um, you have drawn a crowd, and you, your, your teaching is amazing, and you are able to do the miraculous. Well, maybe we can just 
add you to our stuff. Maybe we can just, you know, take, take, uh, take that which is new, which is what you're giving, and, and put it onto our old. But that won't work. I mean, you know, I, I can't go into detail about sewing because that's beyond my pay grade and it's beyond my, you know. But, but you know, it doesn't work. It's not made to do that. And the life that Jesus is offering, the, the, you know, the Baha'i faith basically wants everything. They say, well, we believe in Jesus, we believe in Muhammad, we believe in everything. You know, they just add everything to their religious mix. You can't do that with Jesus. And they couldn't do it with their customs and religious traditions. And then he goes on, verse 37, and no one puts new wine in old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it'll be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. You know, you, you, can, you, can't, you can't take that which, if you put it in the wrong container, it won't work. And as you think about it, sometimes what we want to do with Jesus is, you know, all right, Jesus, you can do a few things in my life, but don't change me completely. Verse 38, but but new wine must be put into fresh wine scenes. And then verse 39, and no one after drinking the old wine wishes for new. For he says the old is, is good enough. You know, if you did a survey with everybody, say, how many of you like change? And, you know, depending upon the context, you know, sometimes we like change. But the vast majority of people don't like change. Because they're afraid if, if I make change, maybe the change won't be better than where I'm right now. The pain now is better than the worst I do not know. But the struggle I have now might be better than the struggle I, I will have if I make a change. And see, there comes a point when we, when we think about following Jesus, and this, is, this, is, this was at the heart of those who should have known so much better than the tax collectors and the sinners and the ones who weren't really tied into the already revealed truth about God in the Old Testament, but they missed it because they were so tied to where they had been, they couldn't see where God wanted them to take them. And that's when we realize it's, it's simple to follow Jesus, simply to trust him and follow him and be devoted and fall in love with him and receive what only he can re- give you, which is forgiveness of all of your sin. But it, but it means it's going to be a radical surgery. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed. New things have come. So what's the word this morning? What's the word of your heart? What's the word of my heart? And we all have to answer this for ourselves. Have you been helped? Have you been helped by the living God? Has that which has been wrong in your life made right because of what Jesus can do for you? You There's so often there's deception spiritually as people try on their own to find God and they, they, they get they, it's almost like an inoculation they, they get a little bit of the disease but they don't get the real thing has Jesus entered into your life and given you the help that only he can give 
But if you've made that commitment to Christ, you've got another question you need to answer. Whether you already have made that commitment to him or need to, or whether you're, there's, there's another step God wants you to take, do you want help? You have to ask yourself, have you been helped, but then do you really want help? Do you, do you want to make that next step of following him, or do you want to make the first step in following him? And then finally, our hands. Are, are we at the point where we're helping others? You know, it's so easy to live the life in which we are more concerned about, am I being helped, whether I'm helping? Isn't that true? Usually that's how we evaluate organizations. That's how we evaluate relationships. Uh, am I being helped or am I helping? God wants us to, to know if we have been helped. He wants us to be honest. Do we really want his help? And then thirdly, he said, have you, have you got into the program of being that person who helps others? Let's pray. If I would pray that we as a church at Grace Hills might be known as a, a, a person that has been, people that have been helped. And we are so excited about the privilege of being helpers of others. Maybe there's someone here this morning that hasn't made that step, and I pray if that be true, that they might just, just apply the ABCs of the gospel to them, themselves. A, admit their need and turn from their sin. Turn from that which keeps them from a true relationship with the living God. B, to, to believe, to trust that Jesus Christ is who we claim to be, God and Savior, one who rose from the dead and paid for our sins. And then C, commit. To commit to simply say, I want to love Jesus, I want to trust him, I want to follow him as the leader of my life and follow him as the God who came to deliver us from our sin. And then Father, I pray for us who have made that commitment that we might just jump into the exciting journey of living life in fullness of joy to be a blessing in other people's lives, to help them see who Jesus is. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.